Hi, I'm Allison Kubo. Hi, I'm Roger Goldman. Welcome to Mountain Money. For many years, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act was a relatively obscure provision of the law known mainly by FCC law nerds. But as the Internet in general and social media in particular have grown in their importance to society, the provisions of Section 230 and the way in which it protects entities considered interactive computer services from certain kinds of liabilities have come under increasing scrutiny and criticism. And last week, the Supreme Court heard cases involving Twitter and YouTube that could greatly affect the impact of the law and the Internet as we know it. Here today to help us understand Section 230, what the court might do, and why it matters, is former FCC official Matt Brill. Matt is the global chair of the communications law practice at Latham & Watkins. Matt, welcome to Mountain Money. Well, thank you, Roger. Nice to be with you. Matt, let's start with some background. What is Section 230, and what was the impetus for its passage in the first place? Well, Section 230 is a provision of law uh, that protects Internet companies from lawsuits. And the impetus for its passage was a 1995 case out of New York State known as Stratton Oakmont, in which an early Internet service provider called Prodigy was held liable for filtering the content that was available to its users. So they were trying to remove objectionable content, but in doing so, they became liable for things that they failed to remove or things that plaintiffs said uh, were, were causing harm. And in the traditional media landscape, publishers like newspapers can be liable for defamation or other harms when, when even when they're publishing third-party content. And the issue that, that arose with Section 230 was with the internet and the enormous volume of information that gets posted from third parties on social media sites and others. Back in the day, it was really, um, uh, you know, different types of sites, but today we see, you know, billions of pieces of information. It's obviously much more difficult to screen all that information before it's published. So Congress provided broad protection for publication of third-party information. And at the time, what did they think they were doing? In other words, was it, was, was it really a matter of these Internet companies were just simply republishing things without doing any editorial looking at all, and, and this was just sort of a, hey, we recognize you're not really at the switch? Yeah, it's really about what we call content moderation today. I mean, the early sites were bulletin boards where people could have conversations, chats. And the Internet service providers ran a risk if they didn't take down content that there could be hate speech, harassment, you know, the types of things we might see today. And Prodigy wanted to filter that content and create a better experience, but it did so at risk of becoming liable for statements by its users. And that's what Congress stepped in to prevent. What have been the criticisms of Section 230 in recent years? Well, I, I think it's come under widespread attack because it's, it's really a proxy fight for criticism of content moderation. And, and interestingly, I think the criticisms come from diametrically opposed perspectives. Um, on the one hand, you have a lot of people who think there's not enough content moderation. Um, when there was electoral interference or COVID misinformation, I think a lot of folks often on the progressive side of the political spectrum thought social media platforms and others weren't exercising their civic responsibility to prevent misinformation from causing significant harm from distorting elections or people's decisions about important matters like public health. At the same time, other critics thought there was too much content moderation, that taking down public figures like President Trump, the, the kind of deplatforming that occurred on Facebook and Twitter, or the, the removal of posts uh, that, that, that were deemed offensive um, seemed to many to be too subjective and lacking in transparency. 
And I think we see this in Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter, where he called for you know less content moderation. So while there are a lot of criticisms, I find it interesting that you know many of the uh, critics want very different outcomes. This really brings the to, to the front, and before we get into the legal issue, it's sort of like the practical issue. What what does a site like Twitter or or even Facebook do with respect to content? In other words, obviously they're not a, news, a traditional newspaper in the sense that they're not writing editorials, but they're also not merely passively allowing people to post things. So uh, they're really a th sort of a third kind of a beast, I take it, and Section 230 doesn't recognize that. Well, I think all sites have some obligation to prevent certain types of content. Criminal laws, for example, would, would prevent publication of child pornography. And beyond things that are blatantly unlawful, I, just about all sites make a judgment that they're going to have terms of use that prevent har harassment, hate, hate speech, and the like. And they, they often employ human reviewers to, to take down offensive content and increasingly, you know, artificial intelligence tools that, that will identify such posts. But I, while Congress, I don't think, anticipated exactly all these al algorithms and tools, I, they, they really did, uh, I think, understand the fund fundamental dilemma that on the Internet, a publisher of third-party content can't act like a broadcaster or a newspaper and screen things in advance of making public decision, publication decisions. There's just too much content being uploaded uh, all at once. And I think in the Supreme Court case, which we'll get to, um, there are like thousands and thousands of hours of, of video being uploaded on, on YouTube every every hour. And so the notion of screening all that before it goes up is not realistic when it comes to Internet content. We talked about the criticisms of Section 230. Have there been legal challenges to this section in the past? I know that the whole reason why you're on today is because there are two challenges that came before the Supreme Court last week. This is the first time since the enactment of, of the statute in 1996 that it's been before the Supreme Court. But the statute has been construed by the courts of appeals and the federal trial courts for many years. And, and there has been a pretty broad consensus that the immunity under Section 230 is sweeping. And it, and it covers not just the, the act of publishing third-party content, but a lot of the traditional editorial functions that go along with that, including the decision whether to publish something or whether to take something down. And as well, it, it tends to cover formatting of content and, and, uh, and just the traditional editorial functions. Uh, but, but those decisions in the courts of appeals have not been the final word. So certainly this effort by the Supreme Court to take a look at these standards and see what Section 230 protects and what it does not protect uh, is going to have much more significance because it'll bind uh, courts across the country. So I assume all eyes in the uh, communications law world were focused on the Supreme Court uh, cases last week. Um, Matt, did you happen to listen to the argument just out of curiosity? I did. Okay. So we had two cases. We had one involving Twitter and one involving Google. Let's do a little bit of background on the Twitter, wh whichever one you think would be make sense to talk about first. Sure. Well, the, the Twitter case uh, and the Google case actually were decided together, and they present similar issues. Um, but, but, but there are different legal questions presented in the two. The Twitter case um, in, involves a victim of, of terrorism where the family is suing Twitter for not having done enough to prevent ISIS from using Twitter as a means of spreading its hateful messages. And the issue in that case is whether a statute known as the Anti-Terrorism Act provides a right to sue Twitter based on the harm uh, that occurred, based on the killing of, of the, the family member of the plaintiffs. And, and that case doesn't directly involve Section 230. It, it just it, it involves the question whether Twitter, by 
providing us a platform for speech uh, aided and abetted the terrorists. And, and the statute, the Anti-Terrorism Act, turns on whether you're providing substantial assistance to the terrorists. So the, the question here is really whether on these types of facts, where there's a generally available social media platform, just like a, a banking service or, or some other service terrorists might use, whether that can, as a matter of law, amount to substantial assistance to terrorists. So it's sort of 230 adjacent? Well, it's, it's, it's whether the, the type of lawsuit someone might bring itself is valid before you get to the separate question whether 230 provides a shield that would prevent that lawsuit. Okay, so it's saying that the act of publishing this it, 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 it could be sufficient to rise to the level of aiding and abetting. And how do the justices react to that question? I think there was a fair amount of skepticism. Uh, it, it, it seemed that um, it's very difficult to say that when you're providing a service that's not targeted to terrorists, it's not advertised to terrorists, it's not facilitating terrorism in any knowing or act, active way, but nevertheless was used by terrorists, is somehow aiding and abetting the horrible act of, of, of a terrorist attack. Uh, Justice Kagan and others were asking, you know, what about all manner of other services that the terrorists may use? That they, they, they may use bank accounts, they may use telephones. It, and I think we've traditionally not thought that when services that are generally available to the public are utilized somehow by terrorists uh, without knowledge of the provider of a service or, or a product, that, that those uh, product and service providers are aiding and abetting the terrorists. Yeah, I suppose it could also apply to the Pizza Hut guy. Um, Matt, let, it sounds to me, though, because of the way you're articulating this, that it is quite possible that the court could decide this case at least without getting anywhere near Section 230. That's right. I think the Twitter case won't involve Section 230. Uh, the Google case, which we'll talk about, uh, directly involves Section 230. But the Twitter case... Uh, is really whether there's a, a cause of action under the Anti-Terrorism Act, and uh, the, the court won't need to decide the Section 230 issue uh, in, in that specific Twitter action. And, and traditionally, obviously, the court has avoided reaching out to grab issues that it doesn't have to decide, but this court's been a little different, so I guess we don't know. And as you say, we, well, let, let's get to Google, where I, I think it's more squarely presented. Yes, in the Google case, again, another terrorism victim uh, also trying to bring a, a cause of action under the Anti-Terrorism Act. In this case, because YouTube um, was allegedly playing terrorist content um, to ISIS, and, and that in turn uh, allegedly you know, created the conditions that have um, fostered this terrorist attack against an American in Paris. Uh, Google's defense in that case is that leaving aside whether there's a claim under the Anti-Terrorism Act, which they dispute, you can't bring a lawsuit like that because of Section 230, because it centers on the publication of third-party content, that is, of, of ISIS content. And, and YouTube is saying, you know, that's not our content for sure, it's, it's ISIS content. And by making that available, uh, we can't be held liable because we're, we're a publisher of third-party content. The, the plaintiff is saying, that there's a distinction between merely publishing that content on the one hand and by making targeted content recommendations on the other. And what they're saying is that, that YouTube, by having thumbnails uh, on the screen telling you what videos are up next and using algorithms to feed you videos based on other content you viewed, it has made recommendations that should be the subject of a lawsuit under Section 230, even if the act of publishing that third-party content uh, is, is something that can't be targeted through a lawsuit. And my understanding, you know, the way that the algor 
algorithms work and um, the whole, you know, discussion, you know, it's, well, we're organizing the content, not necessarily prioritizing the content. Well, that's right. And I think at the heart of Google's defense is that the way the internet works, if you're a search engine or, or a social media platform, there's just too much information to present in some sort of um, alphabetical or you know otherwise just neutral way. You need algorithms to organize and sort that content to make it useful. So when you get a search result, you know, Google is putting results on that first page for you or Bing is putting results out there because it's suggesting that you'd find those useful. And the defense by YouTube is that by saying that there are certain videos up next, they're not endorsing the content of those videos. They're just using an algorithm to sort the content of videos on the Internet in a way that users might find usable. And so the concern is if you could be liable for that sorting function, it would seem that every time Google presents search results or any other website prompts you to look at content, um, that, that, that the Section 230 immunity might be a dead letter. A number of the justices expressed the concern that liability in this case would make it hard for any Internet uh, platform to be protected in any case because algorithms, algorithms are ubiquitous and are, are inherently sorting and curating content as part of the publication of uh, publication process. It's, it's really interesting. It gets to some really fine distinctions, I suppose. I mean, like when you pull up your Twitter, it, it, it has a column that says, for you, which feels as though they're telling you we've made an editorial choice about what we think you should look at. Yeah, that's right. And then during the oral argument at, at the Supreme Court, a number of justices said, well, is this any different from when you walk into the bookstore and they have a list of bestsellers up front that, that, that they want you to look for? Now, if there's some false statement in that book, mm -hmm. normally we wouldn't think the bookstore is liable for that, merely because they put it on a table as recommended reading. And, and, and that is the, the difficulty here. Everyone agrees in this case that if YouTube makes a statement of its own on its website saying, uh, you, you know, something defamatory, something false, that Section 230 does not protect that. It doesn't protect websites from their own speech. It's only for third-party content. But that line between you know, speaking directly um, on the one hand and on the other curating content that's third-party content uh, was very difficult for the court to grapple with because the line-drawing ex exercise is, is, is extremely tricky. And I take it that's a lot of what the argument was about. And listening to the justices' questions, do you have a sense of where they're trying to go? Famously difficult question I'm putting yeah, to you. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of folks, uh, myself included, uh, thought that, that there was a big risk for Google merely from the fact that the Supreme Court took the case. That you usually take a case when there's a split in the courts of appeals. Here there was no such split. It was pretty well settled that there was broad liability protection under Section 230. And so people, pundits, thought that was a bad sign. But after the argument, I think the consensus view is that the court is not likely to significantly pare back Section 230 protections if they make any changes at all. I think they realize that wading into this thicket and drawing a line between suggestions or recommendations or organizational tools is one they didn't seem to feel equipped to draw. And you had a number of justices across the ideological spectrum, including Justice Kagan, Justice Kavanaugh, wondering out loud if they should just leave it to Congress to decide whether to change this. And notably, Congress has made some changes to Section 230 over the years. In 2018, they carved out from the protection uh, any conduct that facilitates sex trafficking, because uh, they decided that that kind of 
conduct, even when passive, shouldn't be worthy of protection. And, and that might have led the justices to think if, if Congress wants to tweak this regime, it can do so. But the court seemed, I think, very wary of, of making big changes in how this liability protection works. I know that that's one of the pieces that I continue to, to read as I'm understanding this issue is, you know, the Supreme Court justices don't understand the internet. And could their decision, whatever they decide, break the internet? But my question to you is, not being involved in the law as maybe detailed as you and Roger are, once it's before the Supreme Court, don't they have to make a decision? Isn't the time to allow Congress to handle this past? Well, they'll make a decision one way or the other. But I think, you know, when the Supreme Court decides cases, because it's the final arbiter of what a statute means, it's deciding legal questions for all the courts throughout the country, it does consider the implications of its decisions. And here, the statute, Section 230, doesn't provide an obvious answer. It says that you can't be treated as a publisher with respect to the information provided by a third party. But it doesn't say whether organizing content through an algorithm is publication or something different, like targeted recommendations that are not part of the act of publishing. So as they make that interpretive judgment, um, it is common for the Supreme Court to think about how that's going to affect users of the Internet and providers of, of Internet content. And, um, and if they defer to Congress, they wouldn't be really punting from the decision. They would be upholding the ruling of the Ninth Circuit that Section 230 does provide protection here. So it's not a question really of whether they skip deciding the question, but it's whether they exercise some restraint in making big changes because they think, you know, any changes should be made instead by Congress. Which is an interesting segue. Do you, let's assume they, 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 they do something like that and they, they basically say, hey, we're going to leave it as it is and leave it to Congress. Would you expect to see some motion toward uh, a, a more sophisticated or more subtle regulatory regime around Section 230? Could, would it either be done by statute or maybe delegating something to some administrative agency to, to, to do some more subtle things? I imagine it would be very controversial no matter what they tried to do. It would be, and I, and I don't think we're going to see that. During the Trump administration, there were efforts. There was an executive order calling on his administration to reinterpret the statute. He called on uh, part of the Commerce Department to have a petition asking the Federal Communications Commission to narrow the liability protection. Uh, that, that did not uh, really take off, especially with the change in administration. And, you know, obviously Congress itself can change this regime, but as I mentioned earlier, some of the criticisms are coming at this from very different perspectives, where some people think there's too much content moderation, and some people think there's too little. And so while there may be a broad consensus that you know, content moderation warrants some increased oversight. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a consensus on what type of oversight. One additional factor is that the First Amendment is always lurking in the background here. When, when, when Congress tells publishers of third-party content, that is social media platforms and others, how they could exercise their editorial discretion, there's a significant risk that it could run afoul of the First Amendment in doing so, because Congress can't make laws abridging the freedom of speech, and telling publishers how they exercise their editorial judgments has been held in a lot of contexts involving newspapers and cable systems and television stations and internet platforms as well. You know, they have, they're making First Amendment protected judgments, so it's very difficult for Congress to regulate in this arena. I guess the ultimate question, as we look at everything that we've discussed today, is can the internet as we know it exist without Section 230 or something like it? Well, I think, you know, proponents of this 
statute say it's been a, a vital building block for the growth of the internet because crippling lawsuits could make it very difficult for website providers and social media platforms to to publish third-party content the the justice department weighed in in the google case on the side of the petitioner saying that you could allow uh targeted content recommendations to fall outside the protection under 230 without breaking the internet because most of the time it wouldn't give rise to liability if google provides search results that recommend something it wouldn't typically be the case that that gives rise to a lawsuit but I think some of the justices doubted that, and they thought this example of an aiding and abetting claim under the terrorism and a terrorism statute was an example of how there could be a lot of liability for routine business decisions that aren't really aimed at assisting terrorists. And so I, I, I think there's widespread concern that, that a flood of lawsuits could, at minimum, make it much more costly and burdensome for, for website operators to provide the services we all enjoy today. It'll be interesting to watch as the increased presence of artificial intelligence may create even more of a targeting phenomenon, whether this, this issue comes back in a more sort of pointed form as we go forward. But uh, I guess we'll have to see, Matt. We've been talking with Matt Brill uh, about the implications of Section 230 in the Supreme Court cases this week. Matt, thanks for taking the time to spend with us. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. A lot of worries revolve around money. The reason for that anxiety are very obvious to those with not enough. But for many of us, there is the stress of not having quite as much as we would like, or having a bit less spending power than last year. And these worries can feel just as real and just as crushing. Michael Gilmore wrote The Little Book of Zen Money for just these types of occasions, where we shouldn't let money take control of our lives and emotions, so that we can see through it to our true enjoyment. Joining us this morning to share these tips is Michael Gilmore. Michael, thanks for joining us on Mountain Money. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. What inspired you to write the book, The Little Book of Zen Money? Yeah, thanks. I, I, I wrote one book before this, and I wrote it for the smallest target market you can imagine. I wrote it for my daughter and no one else. Um, and and Wiley picked that up, and they, they liked it, and they said, well, do you have another book as well? I think I should go for a bit bigger target market. And I was thinking, well, what is that? And I think that when I, all the work I do in financial literacy is often very targeted because everyone needs something slightly different because money's simple, but people are complicated. So you need to target, you know, a different type of person every single time. But I thought, what's what the biggest, most general thing about money? It's stress, right? It's, it's just people get stressed about money sometimes with cause, but a lot of time with, without cause. And I thought, well, what if I can actually address that problem? And one of the, one of the keys to, to selling and marketing is never to say, it's stress. Don't tell people, you know, don't sell the sakes, sell the sizzle, right? What you want is you want peace, you want calm. And that was really where, we, where I ended up going with Zen, is there's a lot of meanings to Zen and a lot of ideas there, but, but how can we bring mindfulness? How can we bring peace? To thinking about money and that was really the goal and I thought that's the biggest target market that I aim for I've got one with target market of one with my daughter and now everybody else well you know it's an interesting point because we're each of us individually are a target market of one for ourselves and I think yeah. it's easy to look at how we look at the world and and think that that's how the, all of the world uh, looks at issues when it comes to stress in money what are the main causes, right? One person might be stressing over one mm -hmm. thing and thinking, well, this is what everybody worries about, but I suspect that's not the case. 
what are the main causes of stress when it comes to money? I think the big one is when we're never taught. You know, uh, when we're taught how to read and write and do basic uh, mathematics, we could be taught about money immediately after that. We could be taught how simple it is and what the simple steps are. And yet we're left to find out these things for our own, potentially 15, 20, 25, 30 years later than when we could have been taught it. Uh, and the, there's a reason why the, the subtitle for the book is a, a simple path to financial peace of mind, because pathways are the, the main metaphor of the book. And when you're on a path, you can see it. But when you come at the side of the path, you've got no idea there's a path there. I grew up in, in the UK. You can probably tell from my accent. And I grew up in the Cotswolds. There's a lot of country paths across the Cotswolds. They've been there through tradition. Sometimes they're just a field where people have trod down the grass a little bit more. So when you're staring down the field, you can see that the light's bouncing off that grass a little bit differently. You come in from the side of the field, the path isn't even there. You could walk straight across it. Now, that's where I think most of the stress comes from. You're not a thing. You've never been taught the beginning of the path, being shown where the path is. Then you're 35 years and someone comes to you about a fixed rate mortgage and how long do you want to do this for? And you don't know what they're about. And you maybe have picked some of the things up on shaky foundations. And that is stress. That is the uncertainty. That's the, I don't know how to get out of this. I think I know a bit. I think I know something else. We learn to read and we learn to write and we build on, on solid ground on those things. But because we don't have solid ground on, on basic financial concepts, you know, that really just talking about sort of saving, understanding how money compounds over time, because we don't have a grasp of that, we're not taught that young enough, all the things come on top of this. And so it becomes shaky. And the shakiness leads to, to two extreme behaviors. It learns to avoid, leads to avoidance, which is the most common, you know, the most common behavior in, in lots of people. It tends to be more, more women than men as well, which is one of the things that leads to lower savings rates uh, and investment rates. Stock market participation by women, I think, is something like a quarter of the level of stock market participation by men. And then by men, it tends to lead to overconfidence. So, you know, back in the, the, the GameStop uh, and all those kind of um, bubbles that we saw a couple of years ago, there weren't too many women on those chat rooms. No, that was young men talking themselves up, talking their abilities up when they had no idea that they what they were doing because it wasn't built on solid ground. Now, and I think in between those extremes, you see just low-level or high-level stress of what do I do? What should I do? What's the right thing to do? And so, and I think, you know, one of the things about finance is there is a lot of information, but no education. And that's a dangerous thing. You need a lot of education to know how to process a lot of information. But without that education, the information is just confusion. And that's what leads to the stress. And that is how I see the main cause of stress. There are lots of other things that cause stress, but that is the biggest thing, is this uncertainty in society. And it's all societies, uh, everywhere in the world. Let's talk about that. So, you know, your book is designed to help reduce some of the stress and to mm. help with the financial literacy and give people a game plan uh, as to how to think about and deal with money. And in particular, your book is broken into three main parts. Share with our uh, our audience, what are those three main parts and what are they designed to help people with? 
Yeah. So the, the three main parts. The first part is to actually try and argue that you can look at money in a less stressful way. And that actually there's a reason to look at money in a Zen way, to be calm about money. Uh, and, and there's lots of reasons for that. And that's really the first part of the book is just say that these are the ways you can be mindful about money. And that actually mindfulness makes sense about money. Where else do you want to be more mindful than, you know, when you're shopping, when you're saving, when you're investing? This is actually time to be mindful. So that's really the first third of the book is is talking about that. It also talks a little bit as well about the interrelationship between you know, how much you need to save and how much you want to spend and how there's quite a Zen relationship there. I mean, I love the fact that the there's an equation for uh, like effectively Nirvana has a mathematical equation. Because if happy is what you get divided by what you want, then Nirvana is achieved by wanting nothing. Because if you divide anything by nothing, it's infinity. So infinite happiness. And that's where you see the pulling back in wants, the pulling back in expectations. Now, now that's impossible, obviously, which is why all the Zen Cohen's have, you know, impossibility built into them. But the path towards that is the path to happiness. And that's by wanting less and by spending less. The beauty of it is, you know, your let's say your pension fund, your freedom fund, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't need to be so big if you don't want to spend so much money. The same mathematical structure applies. So that's really the first third of the book is talking about those concepts. The middle of the book is is a an acronym I used when I was working with migrant workers here in Singapore, and it's mission. And it was the design of that was to keep it very simple, and to say, okay, so easy to remember. And so where are you trying to go with money? Because this is a pathway, and we need some big signposts on the way, some landmarks. And so we gave sort of seven letters, and mission stands for money, income, saving, spending, investing, owning, now. And the point to all of those things is they build a progression. As you're saying earlier on, so what are we building on? What's money? Right? I mean, this is how basic we can be. But if you don't really understand what money is, one of the things that leads to all the confusion. Money, and you'll see lots of things about saying what money is. It's a form of transfer. It's a store of value. All this kind of stuff. No one knows what those things mean. They're just, they're just dictionary definitions. But money is where you put your time and your energy. You put your time and your energy into money and you give your money to get someone else's time and energy back. It is time and it's energy and it's creativity and it's inspiration. It's all the things that are human life jammed into, you know, this thing that we can trade or we can store or we can invest. Now, once you understand that, you understand why you need to earn it. You understand why you need an income. But then you also understand why you need to save it because someday you're not going to want to actually have, you're not going to have as much time. You're not going to have as much energy. You're going to want to get more back out. You need to have some saved up. And then we have saving and spending, and they go in that order. This was something I was taught by the migrant workers, that saving always comes before spending. And it's one of the, it's, I think it was Robert Kiyosaki that calls it, you know, pay yourself first. But I think save before you spend is a much easier way to remember it. It's, you know, this is saving doesn't happen at the end of the month. But saving what you've got left at the end of the month is the money you accidentally haven't spent. The money you put into the savings account at the beginning of the month is month you have actively saved. And the activity is vital. The difference between having some money left over at the end of the month passively and the money you actively put into your savings account at the beginning of the month 
is huge. One of the reasons why retail therapy works very, very, very briefly is because activity breaks the cortisol buildup that you're feeling through stress. Just doing something, anything, will reduce your cortisol buildup. Activity build, reduces the cortisol buildup. Passive, being passive doesn't. So when you're in the shop and you want to buy it and you say, oh, I'm not going to buy it, I'm not going to buy it, you feel the stress build up and the activity of buying it releases that. Now, saving money, actually targeting this money goes into my savings is an activity. That's why it comes first and that's why you must do that. So saving, spending, investing, and investing and owning we put together because I, I think it helps separate people from speculating. Investing is just the building towards an ownership position. That's all it's doing. Is you invest and you invest and you invest and eventually you own. Uh, and, and that is, puts those things together. And then the most important one is now, right? Now, there is no other time. Um, and again, I think you see again, that's a, such a Zen concept, right? There is only now. Um, you can only live in the moment. You can only do these things now. And that's not a FOMO, you must always spend money. Look at life, rea you know, realistically. I'm going to be here in five or 10 years time. I'm going to need my investments. Look at it realistically. That's it's a line from Alan Watts, the 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 British philosopher who looked at Eastern uh, mysticism and was one of the first interpreters of Zen, um, in, you know, in the modern era. And he he says uh, Zen is seeing reality directly, and that's what I hope we do with this book: is see money directly, see exactly what we want from it and what we can do with it, and then take that forward. So that's the middle bit. Sorry, I'm going a bit slowly, but the last bit I'm going to do quite quickly. It's just 49 simple little steps, day by day, small steps, things anyone can do on any given day. Nothing complicated, because the idea is this path, right? We've just done, we've talked about the path being possible. Then we've talked about the big signposts. And now let's take little simple steps towards them. And what can we actually do? Well, in, in one of the examples you give in your book, speaking of 49 steps, I'm going to paraphrase uh, another uh, common phrase, which is, you know, the journey, uh, the journey mm. to a million dollars begins with 49 steps. And, and you talk <laughs> about how easy it can be uh, to get to a million dollars. Share with our audience that example. Well, that's actually from from the first book that was I mean, I talk about it, but it's 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 the it was a conversation I had with my daughter. And I was trying to work her through the ideas of compounding. And, and I wanted to put accessible ideas in her head. And she asked me, she said, okay, so if I want to be free, if I want to be financially independent, you know, what if I need a million dollars? What's the smallest amount of money I can save every day? So she was 17, but she was going off to college. And I was like, okay, well, let's say you start when you're 20. And let's say you have a 50-year career. So then you save. And we'll get out the spreadsheet and we'll do the maths. Uh, put a spreadsheet, solve it for the equation, and it came out with $7 a day. Um, compounding at 7% a year, which you know the S&P 500, through long swathes of time, tends to return 9%. It never returns 9% in any given year, but on average, it tends to be around 9%. Um, and when she heard that number, she's at seven, I, she was shocked. I, I was actually shocked. I thought it'd be higher. I'd never done the maths before. And I was like, yeah, $7. This is achievable to way more people than, th than think it is. Most people in the world think they'll never be a millionaire. 
a lot of people that make that kind of money that could save that kind of money think it's not possible for them. And they think they'll have to buy a lottery ticket without realizing the lottery ticket is taking them further away. You know, just simple, steady saving will bring them there. And that's really where, you know, that's why I use that name to write under. It's one of the reasons I think it's an asp it's an inspirational idea. It's within so many people's grasp. Seven dollars. Um, compounding at seven percent. And yeah, it'll take fifty years, but that's better than not having a million dollars, you know, in, in any time frame. And you know, in fifty years' time, a million dollars is not gonna be very much money. I mean, assuming inflation calms down from where it's been the last twelve months and goes back to sort of long term trajectory of like three percent, that's gonna be worth about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in today's money. You're gonna need more. But you know, starting on that path is the right way because there's no other path. That's the right path to start on, small steps and ones that you can control. You talk about the need to write this book because a lot of us have not received that basic financial education, but there's also uh, an issue that you identify stating that humans are not particularly good at thinking about money since it is just numbers. So how do you change that um, thought process within this book? Yes, it's, it's actually one of the reasons why it's so important to write things down. Um, I mean, if you go through, I, the earliest forms of writing are basically accountancy. I mean, it's so in, uh, inspiring to find that the earliest writer found was, this man owes me three bushels of wheat. Uh, you know, it wasn't a great story. But the reason why stories exist is that we remember stories. They're written in ways that we remember narratives. Our minds, and you know this, by remember, you can't know what, let's say you have a regular drive you do like once a month, the maybe 20 miles and it's got like 50 different turns in it. You couldn't draw it on a map. But when you get to a particular junction, you know which way to go. And then you don't even know what the next junction is. But when you get there, you know what it is. Just like a story, you know where the story goes and you know where it winds. That's what our brains are good at doing. That's why the Australian Aboriginal people have song lines and how they remember to sing songs as they go through the countryside. This is how we, our brains work. What they don't remember is a series of numbers. You know, you know just a random series of numbers it just goes like that for everyone. And it's why you must write it down. It's why you must track your spending. And to me, it's one of those things like, you know, we look at a year like last year, the last two years, and things have been very, very hard for people. And it's very easy to say, this is not a time to say to people, you can save because they've got less money than they've ever had before. And it's right. But what you can do is start building the habits. And one of the, the first habit to build is not, oh, I'm going to save a lot of money and imagine you're going to save a lot of money. The first thing is just how much money are you spending and where and writing it down because no one can remember a list of 20 things. A few people can remember 10. Most of us probably get three or four things out of four. And then around the fifth thing, we start forgetting something. Now, that's 20% of your spending you're probably forgetting. That's 30, 40% if you actually just say, oh, I think my money goes here, here, and here. Wrong. You're forgetting like 25%. That 25% will see you retired 20 years earlier than anyone else. That 20% that you've forgotten just because you haven't written it down. That's how crucial this is. And that's why one of the things in the, we talk about in the book is just like, you can fold a little piece of A4 paper into like an eight-sided book 
and you can keep that in your wallet you can keep that in your pocketbook and you can track every single thing you spend if you're embarrassed of like writing it down immediately you we've all got phones now that can take photographs of every single receipt we ever get we can track but always always i think write it down because the way writing just sticks things into our brains in a different way from photographing on a in a in a phone but that works and we know it works there's sign tons of scientific research saying this is what will get you there the um dan Kahneman, sorry wrote um a report 50 60 years ago called talking about the project fallacy or the planning fallacy which is when he'd ask his students you know when are you going to hand in your next report they'd say oh yeah yeah on time and then he'd say well you've handed in the last three about two weeks late when are you going to hand in this one so no no no, on time on time and again two weeks late and he, he called it the planning fallacy that we forget we have amnesia about our actual behavior when we express our intentions and that's and there's a, a report from a, a research report from a canadian a researcher I, I mentioned it in the book I'm, I'm embarrassed i forget her name now but it, she talks about the budgeting fallacy and the budgeting fallacy is you you express your desire i'm going to keep below two hundred dollars this week three hundred dollars on on these areas if you don't track it you will miss it and if you didn't actually track it beforehand you had you it's it's fiction and and that's the key is tracking it and keeping keeping that kind of idea tight we've been speaking with michael gilmore the author of the little book of zen money a simple path to financial peace of mind michael thank you for joining us on mountain money that's my pleasure thank you very much The One Utah Summit, hosted by Governor Cox, occurs every six months, alternating between northern and southern Utah locations. The Northern Utah Summit takes place on May 1st through 2nd this year in Layton, Utah, at the Davis Conference Center. At this location, government and business leaders will gather to discuss Utah's economic development trends and topics at this day-long event. Tony Young with the Utah Governor's Office of Economic Opportunity joins us this morning to discuss this event. Tony, thanks for joining us on Mountain Money. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's begin. What is One Utah? What is the One Utah Summit, and when does it take place? Yeah, so the One Utah Summit is hosted by Governor Cox. Um, occurs every six months, alternating between northern and southern Utah. So here in northern Utah, we have it around um, the Davis, Weber, Salt Lake County area, and then southern Utah is at SUU. Uh, Northern Utah partners include our office, the Governor's Office of Economic Opportunity, the World Trade Center Utah, the Office of Energy Development, and the Salt Lake Chamber. And for the first time, we're having the Northern Utah Summit take place in Layton, Utah at the Davis Conference Center, um, May 1st through the 2nd. Um, and as you mentioned, we're government leaders and uh, business leaders will gather to discuss Utah's economic opportunity trends and topics at this day-long event. And then the Cedar, the one in Cedar City down in southern Utah is October 2nd through the 4th. So is the Northern event, uh, is it two full days of programming and what kind of people should be interested in trying to attend? Yeah, no, so it's, it's um, the May 1st, we're having a startup pitch event uh, for the first time. It's usually included in the actual session of the summit. But for the first time this year, we'll include it the night before. And then the second includes a, a day-long event that will have um, uh, tons of uh, great speakers there. The governor will be speaking. Um, we've got a lot of uh, 
topics we'll cover as far as uh, how to become one Utah, how to build a better team, um, topics on the aerospace industry, since that's huge in northern Utah, um, topics about economic uncertainty, uh, energy, world trade, and, and many others. So who, what kind of person should, should seek out to attend this, this sessions? Yeah, I would say uh, any type of uh, business, community leaders, uh, entrepreneurs, uh, and even if, you, if you're just interested in, in knowing about Utah's economy, what's going on. If um, uh, One exciting thing we are going to have there is uh, Sid McGee from McGee & Company. He'll be uh, speaking to us on the main stage. I don't know if you know this, but he has a, a show with his wife called Dream Home Maker, and um, they, they've been able to build a, a, quite a successful company and um, a huge following, so we're excited to have him there as well. So you've mentioned a little bit of the types of people who would come to the event, business owners, community leaders, local governments. These summits have been taking place in rural Utah for 36 years. What got these started and why do people like going to them every year? Yeah, so before it was called the One Utah Summit here in Northern Utah, it was actually called the Economic Summit. And that began when our office was created, I think back then, um, by Governor Huntsman in 2005. And then uh, when Governor Cox took office, he wanted to combine all of these summits. So before we used to have an energy summit, a global global summit, um, and obviously the rural summit. And so he wanted to combine these and make it a one Utah summit. Um, and so the Utah, the rural summit is now part of the summit series. It began in rural Utah to develop strategies important to maintaining their quality of life. And then originally there wasn't any federal, state, or local entities focused on rural. And so this was an opportunity to work on priorities and programming and get people together in those areas to work together. And uh, one of the sort of unusual topics, is there anything that, that, that's going to be different this year that has not come up in the past um, that will be covered at the, at the seminar? Yeah, definitely. So. As I said, it, it will be located in Layton, Utah for the first time in this northern um, part of the state. Uh, I think recently it's always been held at Grand America. So it's a, it's a different atmosphere and different types of people. So um, obviously up here in the northern area, we ha our aerospace is huge. And so we'll be covering more aerospace topics. Another cool thing that I'm really excited about is normally we would have a networking event after the summit but we've kind of found that people, when they're, not, when they're done with most of the summit content, they just <laughs> kind of want to go home. Yeah. <laughs> and so what we're doing this year a little bit differently is we're having a lunch slash networking event. And this is great also because during, we would usually have speakers or, or the startup pitch or awards during lunch. And then you hear plates and knives and forks and glasses. And so we just thought, let's have its own lunch networking event and Another awesome thing we're doing there is was we're going to have different types of foods from different types of cultures. And so people will be able to try whatever type of food that is. And so I'm most excited about that. I think it'll be a really, really cool um, opportunity to, to network and, and be a part of something different. You had mentioned before that the one Utah Summit kicks off with the Startup Pitch networking event the evening before. How does someone become involved with that? Who, who's providing the pitches and who are they pitching yeah. to? 
Yeah, so the Entrepreneurial Challenge features some of Utah's best and brightest entrepreneurs. And the startup pitch is um, powered by VentureCapital.org in partnership with uh, Weber State University's Hall Global Entrepreneurship Center and obviously our office, the Governor's Office of Economic Opportunity. And um, at this event, judges will rank the best ideas and the, audiences, the audience will select a People's Choice Award recipient. And then the startup pitch finalists will receive cash, in-kind prizes, tickets to the summit, and... Um, those applications are still open for people to apply or, or startups to apply, and they can apply at oneutahsummit.com slash startup pitch. And obviously the Southern uh, Conference happens on a six months offset. H how is that one different than what we'll be seeing at this one? Yeah, so the Southern Utah focuses on statewide engage engagements with rural opportunities, so more of your, your rural issues. And then Northern Utah focuses on uh, statewide engagements with your urban priorities. But both will discuss economic opportunities and how we can make our state better, um, a better place to do business, no matter where we're located. Tony, can you remind us again where someone could fill out the application for the startup pitch networking event as well as get tickets? What are the prices for the tickets for this event? Yeah, so you can go to oneutahsummit.com slash startup pitch. And then to learn more about the summit and get tickets, uh, you can go to oneutahsummit.com. Um, and I believe our early bird pricing just ended, but I think now they're currently at $399. And that includes both the startup pitch the night before and... Um, the regular event on May 2nd. Thank you. We have been talking with Tony Young about the One Utah Summit. Tony, thanks for joining Mountain Money this morning. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to KPCW's Mountain Money. If you like Mountain Money, let us know. Please leave a review.